Good. Well, uh, good morning. And uh, as John says, today we're continuing that sermon series, uh, Messy Church, looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And uh, I think it's fair to say that it's already been a good uh, but challenging series that's been speaking into the life of our congregation here at Aldridge Parish Church. And as we come to this passage in the series today, uh, Paul uses such strong language that some commentators have suggested that Paul is here referring to just one part of the church, perhaps just to leaders. And yet if we look at other passages of Paul, when Paul does that, and he does do that at times, he makes that perfectly clear. He doesn't do that in this passage. So just as he speaks to the whole Corinthian church, just as the letter would have been read to the whole Corinthian church, this passage is intended for everyone. This passage is intended for all of us. Well, over the past few months, a few young adults have been meeting together on Thursday evenings to worship, study the Bible, pray, and to socialise as well. And on this Friday, on this Thursday just gone, I told them the story of my history GCSE exam. And uh, I was one of those people at school who always tried to do uh, as well as I could at school. Always liked to get good grades and exams and I worked hard. And uh, my history GCSE had two exams as part of it, both on the same day, one after the other. And... Out of all my uh, GCSE exams, my history exams were probably the ones I was most nervous about. And uh, the night before those exams, I decided to cram. And word of advice, if you're going to take some exams, do not cram, it does not work. And I spent the whole of that night before these exams studying, making notes, reading through um, notes I'd made previously, and I worked till about 4am. And at 9am that same morning, I was sat there in the exam room. And uh, the first exam has four parts to it. And the first two parts were like those short questions that uh, didn't really have very many marks, uh, they didn't require long answers. And the second two parts of this exam were essay questions. And for some reason, a reason that I still cannot fathom now, uh, probably because I was tired actually, uh, I ended up spending far too long on the first two parts of this exam, parts that really didn't get many points for. And it was about three quarters of the way through the time that I suddenly realised I've still got to write these essays. And so I suddenly panicked, gave up on these first two parts of the exam, and started writing the first of these two essay questions. At the end of the time, I hadn't finished the first essay, and I hadn't even touched the second essay. And I couldn't believe it. I was devastated. I was so shocked. And then when it came to the second, exa- the second exam later in uh, the day, because I was so shocked about the first exam, I couldn't even concentrate on that exam. 
what shocked me even more than that was that somehow, and really only God knows how, I managed to come out with an A for History GCSE. And I think I was more shocked about that than I was about the first part of the exam. But in that first exam, I had become preoccupied uh, with the first two parts of that paper that really didn't have much value at the expense of the second part of the exam that really carried the most marks, that really had the most value. And uh, some of you may remember that last week I gave a bit of a testimony about how Uh, The passage we looked at last week from 1 Corinthians 3 had been really powerful for me in my uh, previous years. It was part of my calling. And uh, my motives for originally wanting to be a lawyer were like poor quality materials that I was building my life with. It was like wood, hay and straw. It really didn't count for much. And that for me, that uh, eternal material that I could, could be building my life with gold, silver, and costly stones, that was something God wanted me to choose instead. And it's this same sort of theme that Paul continues in this passage today. And uh, if we move on, he begins with some strong words. And is this going to work? We're having trouble. And I think so. There we go. Excellent. So Paul begins with strong words. He says, already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. As far as the Corinthians are concerned, they've got everything they need in life. As far as they're concerned, they're rich not only materially, but spiritually as well. They've got everything. In fact, they considered themselves so rich that it was almost as if they had begun to reign as kings and queens of their own little kingdoms. But Paul says, take another look. Because the Corinthians were not using material to build their lives that had eternal value, if we take that metaphor from last week, they weren't using gold, silver and costly stones. And in fact, if they were using that material, they wouldn't be building their own kingdoms at all, but they'd be building God's kingdom. But instead, they were using that cheap, poor quality material, wood, hay and straw, Everything the Corinthians were building with their lives had no value or little value in God's kingdom. It was all for human show. Even their spiritual lives, their main objective was to please people and not God. Just like in my history exam, They'd been focusing far more on the short-term stuff, far more on the stuff that had little value in God's kingdom compared to working to what really counts from the perspective of eternity. 
Paul's trying to say here, wake up. Look around. Your money means nothing. Your human wealth means nothing. Your showy spirituality means nothing. In fact, their attitudes was the exact opposite from the attitudes that Jesus said was blessed in that second passage we heard from Matthew's Gospel, from uh, Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Well, as far as the Corinthians are concerned, they're already filled. There's nothing else anyone else can give them because they've already got everything they need in life. They're so self-sufficient that they don't need one thing from anyone. And not even from God. And if someone was to ask us, do you already have everything you want? I wonder what our answer might be. And on the one hand, it's a strange question. I mean, what is it to anyone else whether we have everything we need in life or not? And yet at the same time, we can have everything and yet have nothing. And it's the same attitude that Jesus challenges uh, when he speaks to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 verse 17. He says to them, You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Whether we realise it or not, this is an attitude that can creep into our lives without us even realising it. Our inclination might be to answer that question with, of course not. Of course we don't already have everything we need in life. Of course there's more we need from Jesus. And if that's the case, the real test comes when we ask the question, how satisfied are we? As a church, how satisfied are we? How settled are we? And if we find that there's not a hunger for God burning inside of us, if we find when we look at our faith that we're actually quite content, if we find that our wealth, our human wealth, or maybe even just being comfortably wealthy, means that we're not thrown onto the mercy and grace of God in faith. If we find that we come to church just because that's what we've always done, or it's a nice thing to do, and we don't really have a want or a need or a desire to meet with God, And these may well be signs that our attitude 
might be more like that of the Corinthians or Laodiceans than we might like to admit. They're actually we're okay with our self-sufficiency. And Paul has some strong words in reply to that attitude. He says, you may be kings and queens reigning, but us apostles, those of us who are really following Jesus, we like the last people who walk into a gladiator arena. In verses 9 and 10, he says, it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ. He says, the world may look at you in awe of your wealth, but the world looks upon us as humiliated clowns of the world. He says there's nothing in our lives that is respectable as far as the world is concerned. He says, we're fools, we're weak, we're dishonoured, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we wear rags, we're tortured, we're homeless, and we work with our hands. The clicker seems to have stopped working again. Any luck? There we go. Excellent. And it's interesting here that Paul includes in this list manual labour, working with their hands, because he's writing to a culture that's disdained manual labour. He's writing to a culture in which manual labour, working with your hands, was something reserved for the lowest of the low in society. Only slaves in in Greek culture, the culture he's writing to, were expected to undertake manual labour and as if to really make his point he goes on to say up to this moment we have become the scum of the earth the refuse of the world just like Jesus in the Beatitudes we just heard he says that We bless when we're cursed. We endure when we're persecuted. We answer kindly when we're slandered. And in reality, it's a life that's so foreign to us, just as it would have been to the Corinthian church that he's originally writing to. We're not homeless. We're not considered the scum of the earth. The majority of us probably aren't really doing, aren't really doing jobs that the rest of society might consider, consider as lowly. But the issue here is not that the Corinthian church are not cast aside by society. The issue is that the Corinthians' pride prevents them from stepping into any situation because of their faith in which they might be cast aside by society.
for us, Paul's not saying here that we should seek to be humiliated or dishonoured, but that our love for Jesus may lead us into situations in which we might be dishonoured or humiliated. That we wouldn't compromise our faith for the sake of saving face. A friend of mine was in town recently and uh, she walked past a drunk person, a drunk man, who was uh, racially abusing a black toilet cleaner. And her faith meant that she couldn't just walk on past and pretend that she'd not seen anything. And so she tried to intervene. And as she did, this uh, drunk person turned on her and started heaping abuse on her. But her faith meant that she wasn't willing to compromise her faith for the sake of avoiding a situation. And following Jesus is the most rewarding, the best decision that we could possibly make. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart yet, there's nothing better that you could do than to start following in the footsteps of Jesus. You'll find life and freedom and hope and joy and love unlike anything you've experienced before. What we don't like often to go on to say is that following Jesus has a cost involved in it. Because Jesus loves us so much, he willingly died and rose again so that every one of us may live life with Jesus now and then for eternity. But following Jesus, following the footsteps of Jesus, also means following him to the cross. That we would willingly suffer with him in order that we may share in his glory. Jesus says to a crowd in Matthew chapter 8, verses 34 to 36, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? I think for us, taking up our cross probably won't mean facing physical violence. But it probably will mean that at some point we may be humiliated for our faith. Because other people just don't understand it. It probably will mean making decisions to choose, in, to, to choose to live in certain ways and not in others. Like Jesus in the Beatitudes we heard earlier. It probably will mean choosing to respond to people or situations in ways that other people just wouldn't. That we would choose to love the unlovable. That we would choose to forgive the unforgivable. That we would choose to be peacemakers in the midst of conflict. Can we move the slides on, please?
And it's been a tough message today. But at the end of 1 Corinthians 4, Paul makes it clear the spirit in which he's writing. He says in verses 14 to 16, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. We can move the slides on, please. Paul writes to them as a father, urging them, longing that they would choose to to live out their faith, even if that means paying a price for it, just as Paul himself had done. If you're a parent and your son or daughter begins to go off the rails, perhaps chooses to uh, make some decisions in life that perhaps aren't as wise as they could have been, You talk to them because you long that they would come back on the straight and narrow. Because you love them. And because you love them, you want the best for them. You don't want to see them get hurt. And in fact, because you love them, it can hurt you when you see them getting hurt. When they start to perhaps go in the wrong direction. And it's in this spirit that Paul writes to the Corinthians. He loves them so much. He loves them with the love of Christ. And it's in that spirit that he writes to them. I long that my love for Jesus would mean that I continue to pursue him. That I continue to follow him. Even if it means that I go into situations where I may have to suffer for that. Or I may be humiliated or ridiculed, or even at the expense of my life. 